morning, everybody. We are, I wanted to welcome some new members. Um, we, we actually announced these in service a few weeks back, but some of you were not here, and so we wanted to make sure that um, you were here. And so if, you're, if you see your name up here, Bruce and Cheryl Stewart, Sam and Emily Ramos, Jackie Summers, Alan and Jenny Johnson, if you're here in service, would you stand? Um, and all right, great. A few of you are here, great. Well, welcome to you guys. You guys, um, I wanted to pray for you. Uh, membership for us is, is a really important thing. It, it's a pattern that you see um, implied in the, in the New Testament. It's not that there's an official roll call, but what you see is that people really mattered and they were connected to a local church. And so oftentimes the, um, the authors that God used would, would mention specific names and greeting people that, that he spent time with in local churches. The idea is people weren't just floating around. And, and um, in, in midair and unidentified, they were actually connected somewhere. They were a part of something. And so there's a really important um, part of connecting and then being a part um, of, of, of a church locally. And so uh, we just are grateful that you've decided to join with us. And I'd like to pray for you and, and also as we head into this morning's uh, message. Father, we just thank you for these uh, new members. Thank you for the way that they've um, went through the process of learning about our church and that they've decided, Lord, to um, call this church their home and to kind of partner with us, Lord, as we work together to try to reach other people in this community and even just around the world, Lord, through um, the efforts of, of what you're doing with us as we partner with others, Lord. I, I pray that each one of these new members would be able to find their place to serve within the body, um, that they would connect with people quickly, um, Lord, that they would open up their lives to the, to the folks that they encounter here and that you would use them, Lord, to help us fulfill a great commission. And um, I pray your protection over them, God, as they grow. And may you use them, God, uh, within OCC to really uh, help us, God, to be faithful in, in what you have us doing. Bless our time. Speak to us, God, through your word once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in this series, and we're looking at some of the different stories of grace, and stories that show God's grace being applied to people who did not deserve it. Um, all of these stories involve people who we would think were headed straight for punishment and consequences, um, but these people actually, in the stories, they've experienced, really, God's mercy and His kindness. And grace is the common thread in all of these stories, and grace is defined as Receiving something you didn't deserve. And so it's experiencing kindness when you didn't deserve it. Whenever we need grace as people, whenever we need mercy or grace, we pray for it. We plead for it. We even maybe beg for grace. Please, God, would you, would you spare me the consequences? Or please, so-and-so, would you spare me the consequences? Whenever we need it, we really, really need it. And if we experience grace from someone, then we really oftentimes are shocked. We're stunned by grace. Uh, we, we certainly don't ex- you know, always expect to receive it. But we know it when we've experienced it, and we oftentimes feel like, wow, I did, I did not. <laughs> that blew me away. I did not deserve that. Now, flip that. <clears throat> On the opposite, when someone else needs grace, that's a different story. <laughs> someone needs grace from us, you know, that's a different story. When we need it, we're like, please, let me have it. But when someone needs it, we're, we're usually like, eh, I don't know. And so... In this morning story of grace, we see one of those situations unfolding. It's like you're watching a movie sometimes, and the character in the movie commits some horrible crime, 
And during the whole movie, you're just automatically cheering for them to go down. You're cheering for that person's downfall and demise because you want to see them pay. And that's kind of like the story we're going to read in Second uh, Samuel. We're looking at the story of King David. And King David, he's Israel's greatest king. And David replaced Saul, the first king of Israel. And he was described as a man after God's own heart. Meaning the things that are important to God, um, this prophet described Samuel as one who is who a man after God's own heart. He was going to do what was important to God. David came from humble beginnings. He was a shepherd for his father's flock. He was caring for his, his father's you know, herds. And he was really being trained through that responsibility. Out in the fields was where his training took place. He would defend his father's flock from predators. And God was using that to actually set the stage for his leadership and for his future. Eventually, he would, he would <clears throat> have an epic showdown with a giant, David and Goliath. And you, you probably heard about that story. And, but when he becomes king... Later on in his life, he becomes king, and God makes him this amazing promise. You see it in Second Samuel 7. God says this to him, I took you from the pasture, from, the, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. You see, a good name is what most of us desire in life. If you want, you can follow along in the listening guide that's, that's in, your, uh, in your program. But a good name, that's, that's what most of us desire in life, a good name, a good reputation. And David, he's no different than us. David wanted a good name. He wanted a good reputation. In fact, God promised him that he would have a good name. And our reputation, it follows us all of our lives. And so the story of our lives determine whether or not we'll have a good name or not. Everything in David's life was going great. His life and his story was working out great. For him to bear that great name that God had promised. But then we read about an encounter that David had one spring when he decided to send his troops out to battle. But instead of going with them, he stays at home. And so let's read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, says this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings would go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So in the springtime, after the rain had cleared out, you know, basically during the rainy season, um, the wars would cease. And not all of the time, but oftentimes the wars would cease. And then after the rain starts clearing, springtime comes, this is the time to go back to war against the, your enemies. And so this is the time you would advance. This is the time you would take ground. And so David sends out his troops with Joab. Joab is his military commander. And they had to take over the capital city of the Ammonites, Rabbah. And it says, but David stayed put in Jerusalem. And then it says in verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof. It, in those days, people would rise early, like as the sun was rising, people would get up. And then, you know, midday they'd have their lunch and then they'd take a nap. Some of you probably have experienced this, where after lunch you take a nap siesta or something and and it's hard to wake back up well david wakes up from his nap and it says as he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful now when, when we read this story and you and you read through just how dark it gets david is um clearly painted in a in a bad light because of his actions uh, but Bathsheba. She was bathing 
um, out in the open, um, within ice, you know, within eyesight or uh, within view of the the king's palace. And so, um, sometimes we don't think that she knew anything of what she was doing. But um, you got to wonder how did she not know <laughs> that she was bathing out in the open within view of the the king's palace? So, let's continue. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now this is the wife of one of his military leaders. Someone said, one of his servants said, Isn't this Bathsheba? She's the wife of Uriah. Now Uriah was fighting in the war along with the rest of the men of Israel. And Uriah is not just any man, but he's listed as one of the mighty men that fought with David. He was listed in, in a listing of noble, mighty men that are kind of highlighted in Scripture in the book of Chronicles. Uriah is one of those people that are listed. He's one of the key leaders on the battlefield. This is his wife that David catches the glimpse of. He calls for his wife, and Bathsheba comes, um, and, and basically, um, you can read between the lines, he commits adultery, he takes advantage of his position and its privileges, and then he learns very quickly that Bathsheba becomes pregnant with his child. He, David tries to figure out, how can I get out of this mess? And so what he decides to do is he, he asks Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come back from the battle lines. And he tries to convince Uriah to take a few days off of the, of the war and spend some time catching up with his wife. And this is his effort to cover up. But Uriah refuses to go home to be with his wife. He says, how can I go and be with my wife if my men are out on the battlefields sleeping in the cold? I couldn't do that to my men. And so he sleeps at the entrance of the palace. And David, he realized, okay, this isn't working. So then he decides, I'm going to get Uriah drunk. And so he says, you know, let's, let's drink some wine. And we're about to show you a, a video clip of this as well. And, and still, getting Uriah drunk has, doesn't have the effect that David was hoping for. And Uriah still sleeps at the palace entrance. And he doesn't go home to be with his wife. So then David, it gets darker. He takes it one step further to cover up his sin. Look at what happens in verse 14, if you move ahead. Verse 14 says, In the morning, David wrote a letter. So this is after Uriah won't go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he sends this letter with Uriah. Here's what the letter, in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be, he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. I want to show you a brief video clip from a, a mini-series on the Bible that was released last year. And it's, it's, you know, it's made for TV, and so it's, it's, it's not going to be word for word here. But you'll get kind of the idea of what David was doing and what he was trying to do. And you'll see how it gets darker and darker. And so here's, here's his interaction with Uriah after he calls Uriah home off the battle lines. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. God's chosen king breaks his commandments. Uriah, my friend. Welcome. You sent for me, Majesty. How's the war going? Well, very well. And your commander Joab, all is well with him? All is well. A fellow of soldiers. 
They fight well. Excellent. Well, you can give me a fuller report in the morning. I'm sure for now you'd rather be with your wife. I cannot stay with my wife. Of course you can. While my men are camped in open country, fighting the enemy, this is a holy war. How could I go to my home and spend the night with my wife? Does your credit, Uriah? But man to man, who's to know? I will know. Good man. And let's drink. Wine! David cannot force Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba. So he finds another way to conceal his adultery. Commander Joab, I order you to send Uriah to where the fighting is fiercest and abandon him there to die. So at this point, you know, how, how are you feeling about David? Not very good, right? This is David. Let me remind you. This is David that, that you know, wrote the Psalms for the most part. Um, this is Israel, credited as Israel's greatest king. This is the king that God gave that amazing promise to, that your name will be great among the greatest of the earth. And you read this part of the story, and you're like, man, he needs to pay. Right? I mean, that's, that's, we're watching this, and it's just like watching a movie when you think, man, he needs to pay. So here's the storyline. When the news reaches Bathsheba that her husband Uriah is dead, she mourns for him. And as soon as her time of mourning is over, David calls for her and takes her as his own wife. And then she bears David's son. And all is covered up. David assumes, man, I got away with it. I covered it up. I got away with it. Nobody knew. I mean, of course, a few people knew. Some servants would have known. But for the most part, he was able to cover what he thought. And, And then God sends Nathan, an old aging prophet, to come to David to confront him. And Nathan shows up, and he tells David a story about a rich man who used his position and power to take advantage of a poor man. And I'm going to read you the story. It's actually not up on the screen or in your listening guide. So I'm going to read you from Second Samuel 12, verse 1. You guys will be able to pick it up in verse 5 on the screens. But let me read you from verse 1. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan the prophet came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. Is it ewe or ewe? Which he had brought, which he had bought. And he brought it up, the lamb, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter. 
to him. Verse 4 says, Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Oops. Then David says, in verse 5 up here on the screen, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. You see, David needs to experience grace, but he's, he doesn't want this person in the story to experience any of God's grace or any grace at all. Verse 6, And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7 says, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. There were some serious consequences that God brought to, to David. You can read about this in the story. It goes on through Second Samuel. You'll see some of what happens to, Dan, to David's life. I mean, there were consequences. There was bloodshed. There was pain for him and Bathsheba personally. But surprisingly, God was not finished with David. This is the amazing part about grace and about this story. God wasn't finished with, with David. We hear this story and, and we tend to think, man... That's horrible. How could he do that? I would never do such a thing. And we, we elevate ourselves in our own mind into thinking we could never do that. We, we humans have a habit of comparing ourselves with other people. That's exactly what David does in the story. That's what we do when we read the story. It makes us feel better about other, you know, it makes us feel better about our faults if we compare ourselves to the things that people have done in wrong. And we think by doing that, it improves our standing you know, before God. But the reality is, is this, and this is in your listening guide. Comparison leads us to think, I'm better than most people. Comparison leads us to think, I'm better than most other people. It's easy to just do how David did in comparison and be blinded to our own sin and not, not see it and just be critical of other people's sin. Comparison, we find out, is just a huge waste of time. We don't have the ability to really see inside another person. We just see from the outside what's going on. So we see from the surface and we start making comparisons on the surface. This is essentially why Paul tells us to avoid comparison. In, in the New Testament, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth in his second letter, verse uh, 12, chapter 10. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, he says about them, they're without understanding. There's, that's a big waste of time. Comparison, it, it's a waste. It breeds jealousy. It breeds criticism towards other. That's what David started doing. And if you actually are better, let's just assume you are better than most other people, what you have to do is all your life you have to keep proving that you're better. So then you begin to be a self-exalter. And you continue to just build yourself up instead of being gracious and kind with other people. So what we find out is the perspective of the mature is not I'm better than most, but the perspective of the most mature people is I'm among the worst. That's what you read in the scriptures. The most mature people said, I'm among the worst. Like Paul, he called himself the chief of all sinners. In fact, Billy Graham, when he speaks about his own goodness and his own life, he says, if there was a, a ranking of a goodness chart, I would be at the very bottom of the goodness chart. I'm among the worst, Billy Graham says. 
And the reason is because he has a perspective of his standing before God. That's all that really matters. It doesn't matter where I stand in relation to other people. The only thing that really matters is where do you stand before God, not where you stand before other people. The rest of it is a big waste of time. Now, David, in this in this psalm, he's confronted with, or in this uh, story, he's confronted with his own sin, and it's it's it gets his attention. But here we are at Christmas time. It's like a cheery, bright time. Why am I talking about David and Bathsheba in the middle of Christmas season? Uh, the songs that we hear in the department stores they're all about happy things, cheery things, in order to get us to spend more money so that when we're shopping, we're we're cheery and we're willing to spend more. The problem is sometimes in our life we're not very cheery. Sometimes we're dim and we're gloomy because of the things that are going on inside of us. And so it's hard to be bright and cheery on the outside when things aren't good on the inside. And in Psalm 51, we're given an x-ray into David's heart. And what it does is it shows us how he responds to Nathan's rebuke and how we can even deal with our own sins so we can fully experience the grace of God, just like David experienced. We need, and we need to experience and, and fully grasp our sin if we're going to experience God's grace because there's such a stark contrast between our sin and God's grace. It's like seeing bright stars in, uh, up against a black sky. That's how sin and grace are contrasted if we, take, if we really understand our sin. If we try to justify ourselves and excuse our sin that we never really experience and see God's grace in our life. But look at David. He shows us how to deal with the sin that we've committed. And Psalm 51 teaches us how to offer a full confession to God. And Psalm 51, when you read this, it's like reading a personal diary of David's confession to God after he was rebuked. And it's where he should, God shows him his grace as he responds to God. Here's the title. It's given in Psalm 51. It says in the Bible, Psalm 51, <clears throat> A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So if you've ever been kind of shot through the heart with the truth about your sin, this is David in his um, confession. The first thing he identifies is this. To get forgiveness, you have to refuse to excuse your own sin. So David in Psalm 51, 1 through 12. Let me flip there real quick. In Psalm 51, 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's easy to kind of put yourself in a prison and wall yourself off from God because of the things that we've done, because we think God could never forgive me. Why would he forgive me? How could he forgive me? We've all been in that spot. And David, he shows us that no matter what we've done, we can still approach God because God is a God of unfailing love. He has a track record of mercy. It doesn't mean there's no consequences, but when we sin, we need to be cleansed because we've been stained. And we've, oftentimes we even stain our reputation. And if you've done what you've known to be wrong, then you've damaged even possibly your own self-respect. But from God's perspective, sin, it leaves a stain that no amount of human effort, no, no amount of trying on our part can, can cleanse. No amount of detergent can, can wipe away that stain from sin. No amount of good works can do that. The only thing we can do is turn to God, admit our sin, and ask God to cleanse us from, his, from our sin. And that's what David does here. Look at, look at what he says in verse 3. He makes a full confession. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Meaning, 
I may have been able to cover it up, but I can't cover it up. Against you, he says, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There's no spin in David's words. He's not trying to make his actions look more acceptable. He comes clean. He turns to God and casts himself upon God's mercy and forgiveness. Next, David shows us this, that we should ask God to restore us. Once we've confessed and refusing to excuse our sin, then we have to ask God to, to restore things that we've lost. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then he says, this is a key verse because he's a leader. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. In order for him to be effective in his leadership, he had to confess his sin. There was almost a block in his leadership up to this point. There was like a lid that was put on his leadership. But once he came clean and experienced God's mercy, he says, then I'm able to do my... Do the work that you've assigned me to do. David, he's not giving us a self-improvement plan here. He knows that God is the only one who can restore us. And so he's, he's asking God to restore joy, restore, restore hope, restore purpose. One of the traps that we fall into is when we start thinking that we can break sin patterns by just trying harder. I can stop doing this if I just try. Or we think, you know, I'm going to try harder to speak with kindness to my kids. Or... I'm going to give it all I can at work and just stop trying to blow up on people at work. I'm going to give it all I can at work and stop slacking off. And I'm just going to try harder. But something I've learned in the last 18 years of walking with God is this, is that lasting change is not the result of my effort. It's not. Lasting change is never the result of my efforts. It is the grace of God only that changes me. This is what we rely on. This is what saves us. This is... You know, and here's how. When we sin, we refuse to excuse or downplay what we've done. We, we name it for what it is. Father, what I said right now was harsh and unkind. Will you forgive me? Or to the person that I sinned against. You know, if it's the kids. It's the kids. Daddy was harsh. He was unkind to you. Will you forgive me? It's, it's naming it. It's important to build this pattern and this habit of when you mess up that we, we confess it fully. God, and then we confess it even, or, you know, own it to the person that we've sinned against. And then we ask God to restore us. We ask Him, God, would you rebuild? Would you restore hope? Because He's promised to cleanse and also renew a right spirit within us and give the joy back that was lost. And then, you know, this grace of God is what continues to um, provide hope to us. And as we repeat this process over and over in our lives, we learn to accept God's grace and appreciate God's grace more and more. He's the one that renews our spirit. He's the one that brings back the joy. And so if Christmas time is not a season of joy for you because there's something on the inside that is not causing joy, then the starting point is refuse to excuse it and then ask God, would you restore the joy? It comes through full com- confession. The other path is to just think, I can, I can do it on my own. So we wallow in our sin and we hope if we'll just try and try and try. But the truth is, we're not good enough to, to balance out the wrong that we've done. By His grace, God sent His Son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our own rebellion and sin through Jesus' death on the cross. And so we can be sure of His, of His forgiveness towards us as we turn to God. Look at in Psalm 32. This is kind of a sequel to 
Psalm 51. Later, he writes, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, this is how God changes us. He gives us grace and forgiveness when we turn to him, and this is what, you know, this is what really pleases him. Finally, <clears throat> the last part of Psalm 51, it shows us how what, really, what sacrifices really please God. There are certain sacrifices that truly please God. Look what he identifies in verse 16 and 17. He writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, God doesn't want you to just be religious and just do religious acts to make up for your sin. He wants you to humble yourself, admit sin, and just be broken over our sin. What is acceptable and pleasing to God? David says, it's a broken and contrite heart. When was the last time where, when you not just thought about your sin, but really thought about it long enough to let it break you and to be grieved over it? What David does in Psalm 51 is it's called an act of repentance. He, it's, it's changing one's mind so that one's views, one's values, one's goals, and, and ways are actually changed and, and a person's whole life is lived differently. Repentance isn't just, I'm sorry, but it's, it's, it brings about change. And repentance is the fruit, it's the result of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance, real change. And in, in the 17th century, there's, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith. And in, in a small part of it, there's this, this is a 17th century document where a group of church leaders in Church of England, they're... they're they're drawing up their confession of faith and they're writing about different sections of what we believe and what the scripture teaches about faith. Here's a section regarding um, repentance. It says this. It's 17th century language, so it's, it's not you know, all that easy to read. But a sinner, this is about repentance, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness, meaning the disgust of his sins. This is repentance when someone does that. As contrary to the holy nature, our sin contrasted to God's holy nature and righteous law of God and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent. They're they're remorseful, they're sorrowful. So grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all ways of his commandments. This statement, it highlights the fact that incomplete repentance where we just feel sorry out of fear of punishment and consequences without any wish or commitment to forsake our sin, it's not enough. It's not sufficient. But this true, true repentance is contrite. It's modeled in Psalm 51. What we read when we read David's confession, that's true repentance. Having at the very heart of it a serious purpose of sinning no more. And now the truth is, none of us will ever arrive at perfection this side of heaven but true repentance really gets at a seriousness of, of deciding, God, I don't want to sin anymore in this area, and I'm going to run in the opposite direction. I have a heart that desires real change. And we, we do that by ex- refusing to excuse our sin, calling it what it is, and asking God to, um, to show us his mercy and favor. So in the, in the rush of Christmas, we want to encourage you, don't focus only on the outward celebrations or on the outward stuff of our own lives. And try to just put on a smile and, and at the same time miss the inward reality. 
if, if life is dim and gloomy because something isn't right on the inside, um, let that be a trigger to just say, God, what is it that's causing this? What is it that I need to repent of and turn away from? If you'll freely admit you're wrong, what God does, and, and many of us here have experienced this many times, as we freely admit what we've done wrong and bring it before him, we get to experience grace and we get to enjoy this type of a season. We can reflect on God's gift of grace through his sending his son Jesus. I want to invite Cody and the worship team to come back up and, and also ask the ushers to prepare to receive this morning's tithes and offering. And the, If you take out your connection card from your program, in a moment, we're going to be receiving um, our offering. You can drop this connection card in the basket. This is an important card. It lets us know that you are here. It lets us know how to pray for you. And, you know, you can request any information on this. But on the back, you'll see there's these next steps. And here's, here's four different suggested next steps. Number one is memorize Psalm 51.10. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then this is just a verse to commit to memory about this process that you see David going through. And may the process that God is wanting you to take um, to get started in your own life. Second, take time to get my heart right before God. Maybe this is something to do this week. It just takes some time to really reflect on why maybe on the outside or on the inside things don't feel right. Third thing is to share God's grace. If you experience God's grace, then it, it changes the way we extend grace to other people. So share God's grace. One way you could do that is invite someone to church next week. We've got this um, invite, and we'd love it if, if you would invite someone. If you bring someone with you to our family Christmas service um, next week, it'll be in here. There's going to be food, lots of familiar Christmas songs. So if it's a person that, that you know would enjoy that, and um, it'll be a briefer message, there'll be some stuff for kids. And so if it's a family or whatever, we'd love for you to invite them. Last thing is to give today to the Christmas offering. And um, Bruce is going to be coming up in, in a few moments and kind of um, finishing um, sharing about the Christmas offering. So let, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the work that you've done in our hearts. Thank you for bringing us here this very morning. Lord, I, I really know that, Lord, we need you. We need to hear from you in a real way, not in a redundant manner, not in a religious way to where we just come and go through motions, but to where we hear your voice speaking to us, God. It's almost as if it's just you and us, God, and that you show us things in our life that aren't right and that we respond to you. So, Lord, with this time, may you use this time to, Lord, help us to just turn some things back to you, to turn some things over to you that we've been holding on to. And, Lord, would you allow us to experience the grace that you showed to David, a man who sinned against you and yet you restored or many of us here right now are in that same place and we just need to experience your forgiveness and your love and I pray that you give us as a church just the courage to keep responding to you as you show us things in our lives that aren't right Lord if there's anyone here that's never become a Christian, never decided to receive Jesus, Lord I pray that they would uh, be ready to, to make that type of a decision Lord let us know and talk to one of our staff or mark it on their card so that we can help them discover a real relationship with you. Lord, change us, Lord, this Christmas season. Continue to to refine us, Lord. We know that we're not going to get everything right, but Lord, would you would you continue to do your work of changing?
changes. We just want to experience your grace once more. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.